Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning. Uh, it was in uh, the fall of 1998 as I was studying on this campus as a master's degree student <clears throat> that I left in the middle of my master's degree to go and live in the country of Russia. Now, this uh, trip uh, lasted two years, and it posed a number of challenges for me, uh, not the least of which is because I grew up in rural North Carolina and had never been out of the country before. Uh, but there were so many different challenges. I think I, I had trouble getting acclimated, literally. Uh, there were climate challenges uh, in, in Russia there in the city of Kazan, where I served as a university instructor. Uh, winter lasted eight or nine months, and, so, and it got down to 20, 30, and 40 below zero. And so that, I found that to be a challenge. Uh, there were cultural challenges. For example, one of the favorite pastimes in Russia was going to the banya. And my friends you know, said to me, uh, you have to try the banya. It is very, very good. It is uh, a lot like American sauna. And, uh, and it was. It was like an American sauna because it was a square room with a lot of heat. Um, but they also would whip each other with birch branches in that, that room. And I thought that was different. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was a challenge for me personally, the biggest challenge actually. <laughs> but no, seriously, the biggest challenges when I lived in Russia were spiritual and intellectual. I served as a university instructor at uh, three different universities, but in particular Kazan State Pedagogical University. <clears throat> and Kazan is a fascinating city in the former Soviet Union and a social, cultural, and political crossroads where its citizens were, were Muslim, uh, Eastern Orthodox, and atheist, where they were experiencing a transition from modernity to, to uh, post-modernity, modernity, from uh, communism to capitalism. And so everything was in disarray. And it was there as a university instructor that I first began to reflect seriously on the question that I'll address today. What, what does, what should my Christianity have to do with my public life? What does God's saving works in word have to do with my cultural life, my interaction in the arts and sciences, politics and economics, scholarship and education? home life, and all of these sorts of things that are considered non-religious. To be more specific, what is the relationship or what should be the relationship of the Bible to higher education, as I taught as a university instructor? And so I'm going to pose that question today. The title, the horrible title of my lecture is, What Hath Nature to Do with Grace? An Exploration of the Bible's Place in Higher Education. Now, it is true that this title is not particularly interesting, you know, What Hath Nature to Do with Grace? And some of you, Dr. Hildreth is thinking, yeah, that title is somewhat, something like the opposite of interesting, and, uh, you know, and that you think you're going to fall asleep faster than a ferret swimming in a bucket of Thorazine, but I'm going to promise you that I'm going to do my very best to make the content of this lecture interesting. And so what, what, um, so, what hath nature to do with grace? The relationship of nature and grace is the deep undercurrent to the relationship between Christianity and culture, and more specifically to the relationship of the Bible and higher education. 
And so what I want to do first, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to give, and before you think this is boring, you need to know that this is a hotly contested issue, not just in Western culture and not just among Christians, but among conservative evangelical Christians. Nearly everyone disagrees on, on, the, on the answer to this issue. And, uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by giving five competing visions of the relationship of nature and grace, and then I'm going to follow that up with a contemporary example of how we can put my preferred view into action, okay? So let's start with five competing visions of nature and grace. The first thing we've got to do is define our terms. What do I mean by nature and what do I mean by grace? So let's start with nature. I mean something bigger and more expansive than you probably mean when you hear or use the word nature because I mean not only the created order, but I also mean the cultural order. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he called it good. That's the created order. That's nature. But also, he, he commanded humanity to till the soil and to have dominion and to name the animals, and those are cultural activities. And that's a part of the natural realm or nature, the way I'm using the word this morning, okay? And so that's nature. It includes our creational life and our cultural life, pretty much everything all of these non, so-called non-religious aspects of our life. So what do I mean by grace? What I mean by grace is God's saving works and word. So what is the relationship or what should be the relationship between God's saving works and word and all of the rest of life? That is the question today. Now these visions, these five competing visions, exert a phenomenal impact on the way we live and on the way we do teaching and learning in higher ed. But before I get into this, I do want to say this. Accepting one of the visions, which is essentially atheistic, the other four visions have arisen from within the Christian community and are held, all four of them, by conservative evangelicals. And I bring up these four views today, not per se to make an enemy out of the three views different than mine, because as a matter of fact, the healthiest proponents of each view tend to look more like each other than they look like the unhealthy proponents of their own view and of their own category. So instead of viewing the other visions as opponents to be dismissed or defeated, I want to view them as mutually beneficial conversation partners arguing together towards truth. Okay, so the first vision is uh, usually called grace above nature, and I've nicknamed it for the purpose of this lecture, bottom floor education, all right? So in this view, the world has two stories or two floors. You could look at the world as a two-story house, and in the upper story you have grace, you have God's saving works and word, and in the bottom story, you have everything else. And a Christian divides his time between the lower story and the upper story. So when you go upstairs, you do things like your personal devotions, your church worship, and, uh, and you study theology or ministry, okay? And you do that upstairs. When you come downstairs, you do non-religious activities, basically. You might study philosophy or politics or economics or biology or uh, or whatever it is that you're doing, and that's downstairs. Now, when you're upstairs, the upstairs has been affected by sin and affected badly by sin, and so you've got to bring God's saving works and word into the equation upstairs. But when you go downstairs, you don't need to do any such thing because sin has not twisted and distorted the downstairs such that you have to bring God's saving works and word into the equation. Um, and so this view has a distinct, this vision has a distinctive view of the way Christians should do scholarship. When a Christian is studying philosophy, for example, or biology, downstairs, he doesn't need to bring the Bible into it, doesn't need to bring his Christianity per se into his studying and his learning. 
Um, but when that professor or student goes upstairs to study theology, he does need to do so. Now, this vision has certain strengths, and the greatest strength is that it recognizes that these things in the so-called natural realm are, have not been corrupted ontologically by sin. In other words, there's still good things to do. You ought to study philosophy. You ought to study biology or psychology or education or whatever. But this view also has certain deficiencies, in my opinion, and the main deficiency is this, is that it does not sufficiently understand the twisting and distorting power of sin in the downstairs. Sin is rooted and located in the heart. Religion is located in the heart. And, 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 and so it is heartfelt. It's deeply ingressed. But because it is located so deeply in the heart, in the essence of the person, it radiates outward into everything we do, all of society and all of culture. And so when we take our worship, which should be directed toward God, and we direct it instead toward an idol, like sex or money or power, that misdirection in turn affects everything that we do, including our teaching and learning in higher education. And that is the main failing, in my opinion, of this view. If you look at it like a two-story house again, if there's a massive leak in the roof in a two-story house, that leak is going to affect not only the second floor, but also the first floor. That massive leak is going to leak into the second floor and eventually drip down to the first floor. Now, the way in which the first floor is affected is going to be different than the way the second floor is affected, but both floors will be affected. That's grace above nature. The second view is grace against nature. And I've nicknamed this view a plague on the, on the uh, educational house. Now, this view is usually ascribed to the Anabaptists, but that's unfair because many Anabaptists don't hold this view, and there are many others, monks and other monastics who hold this view, and even many uh, evangelicals, maybe even uh, some of you in this room. Now, in this vision, sin um, has corrupted the natural realm to such an extent that it is no longer good. And that is why God is going to firebomb it out of existence one day, because it is not good. And what this means is that God's salvation will save us away from the natural realm. It will get us away from this world, which is corrupted ontologically in its very essence, in its whatness. And so in this view, God's going to build an entirely new world next to this world. And Christians, likewise, should build the church not in the middle of this world, but sort of alongside of it. A good Christian will uh, separate himself as much as possible from the goings-on of the natural realm and wait for a salvation that will help him to escape from it. Now, this vision manifests itself in various ways in higher education. Sometimes it manifests itself in an indifference towards or a hostility towards the things that we would study in a university. And those things are just viewed as inferior or even bad. But usually, and this is positive, this view has a keen eye to discern the way that evil has infected the disciplines of higher ed, the way that sin and idolatry have warped and distorted the way that we teach and learn in all of these disciplines, in art and science, politics, economics, scholarship, education, sports and competition, all of these things that we study at the, at the level of higher education. But this view also has certain deficiencies, and the main deficiency is that this vision gives sin too much credit. The evil one does not have the power to make bad what God has made good. The best that he can do is to take God's good, good creation, which remains good structurally, and twist it toward wrong ends. That's all he has the power to do. He can only warp and distort. And so this vision unintentionally, as I see it, undermines Christ's lordship and reduces it to one's private life, one's personal activity, 
activities and one's church worship. And then finally, I would say proponents of this vision have difficulty separating themselves from cultural activities because, in fact, it's not possible. We're thoroughly cultural human beings, as we will be in eternity. The third view is grace in tension with nature. And I've nicknamed this view pastors and educators, dual ministers of God. Now, this view has traditionally been called the Lutheran view, and Luther was, in fact, a proponent of this view. But it's not fair to say that it's a Lutheran view because there are Lutherans who don't fit in the category as I describe it, and there are others, in particular an increasing number of Reformed evangelicals, who would put place themselves in this category in one way or another. So in this vision, the world is divided into two realms, similar to the first vision. But instead of there being a realm of grace up here and a realm of nature down below, the two realms are not hierarchically related anymore, but they're side by side on parallel tracks. Okay? And so you have a spiritual kingdom, that's sort of like the realm of grace in the first view, and a natural kingdom, okay? And so Christ rules both kingdoms, but he rules them in different ways. He rules the spiritual kingdom by means of his saving works and word, and he rules the natural kingdom by means of general revelation and common grace. And when you're operating in the natural kingdom, and you're teaching in higher education in these natural kingdom type of disciplines, you don't need to bring God's word into it. You don't need to bring God's saving works into it. You can use general revelation and common grace. This view has a distinctive approach to Christian scholarship. In some ways, it's a lot like the grace above nature view, and that is that you draw upon the Bible, God's saving works in word, when you are in uh, the, the, the spiritual disciplines, theology and ministry, but you don't need to when you're in the other disciplines. The difference is that they're not treated hierarchically. Grace is not super added onto nature. It's alongside of nature. Now, I do not prefer this vision um, because I think it underestimates, like the first view, the power of sin to warp and distort all of our activities and all of our teaching and learning in what is called the natural realm or the natural kingdom. It fails to grasp the epistemological insufficiency of general revelation. Let me quote John Calvin for a moment. Indeed, man's mind, because of its dullness, cannot hold to the right path but wanders through various errors and stumbles repeatedly as if it were groping in darkness until it strays away and finally disappears. Thus it betrays how incapable it is of seeking and finding truth. And so I think this vision fails to understand the breadth of the Bible's relevance to cultural tasks, to life in the so-called natural realm. This view can also, as Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer argued in the late 20th century, lead to an unhealthy social passivism. It doesn't lead to that in many uh, Two Kingdoms proponents, many proponents of this view, but it can lead to that. Because if it's not necessary to bring God's saving works and words into that realm, then you have less leverage and maybe even less motivation to speak out against the twisting power of social and cultural evil in that realm. The fourth view is nature without grace. This is essentially an atheistic view, and I've nicknamed it um, a naked public quad. Proponents of this view are, you know, the, 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 the spoken proponents of this view are atheists, and yet there are also liberal and revisionist theologians who functionally, or liberal revisionist Christians who functionally are anti, or at least non-supernatural, and would fit in some way or another in this category. But this vision sees the world as entirely natural. There aren't two stories, there aren't two realms, because it's all natural. It's got a distinctive vision for the way you should approach higher education. You should keep God's works and word out of it because he doesn't even exist. 
or, or for, for those who may be revisionist Christians of some sort, he, he exists, but he's entirely irrelevant. He's out there. He's not intervening in this world right now. We reject this view for a number of reasons, and I won't spend much time on it because I think we've got common ground in here, but it denies God's uh, works in his word. It uh, denies God's existence. It fails logically, existentially, and empirically. It's, uh, I think, finally logically incoherent. Uh, existentially, it lacks viability. Empirically, it's inadequate. It uh, uh, leaves us a world without transcendence and without norms of any sort. We'll come back to this view later for my contemporary example. But the final view, and this is the view that I hold and that I want to argue for today, is a view that is often called the grace renews nature or the grace restores nature view. And I've nicknamed it for the purpose of our lectures today, an educational preview of a coming kingdom. So let me list some of its proponents. Now I'm going to cheat and I'm going to list a lot of proponents, commit an informal logical fallacy here, and just marshal as many names as I can on my side in the hopes of convincing you that I'm right. But uh, in the modern age, the most famous proponents of this view would probably be Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavink, although uh, Karl Barth and arguably Dietrich Bonhoeffer also fit in this category. Uh, today in the contemporary world, in, in addition to a number of Baptist theologians, you've got theologians such as John Frame, Peter Lightheart, uh, Craig Bartholomew, Michael Goheen, and others who hold this view. Now in this view, there are not two stories, and there are not two realms side by side. This thing called grace is not against nature, and this thing called grace is not non-existent either. So it's not the other four views. You're saying, thank you, Captain Obvious. So what is this view? This view is that God created one kingdom, and it is his good kingdom, and it continues to be, structurally speaking, his good kingdom even after the fall. Now let me explain what I mean by that. So when God created the world, he created it good. He spoke his word, and his word called forth something from nothing, and then it ordered that world. It gave it a certain ordering, and that could be, be viewed as God's thesis for the world. This is the way the world ought to be. But, the Satan, but, but Satan, the Satan, um, uh, called that into question. He spoke a word against God's word, and that word could be called an antithesis, an antithesis. And this antithesis remains today operative everywhere and operative in every human heart, even in Christians. It's a word that questions God's word, a word that goes against God's word. And after the fall, however, the world remained structurally good, but directionally bad. Let me explain what I mean by that. After sin and after the fall, the world remained structurally good. And what I mean by that is this, that the world, the way it is ordered, remains good. The fact that we have sun and moon and stars and dry land and water, and human beings and animals, that's good. And the fact that we have a certain cultural order is also good. Things like the arts and the sciences, and politics and economics. And I think we would have even had politics before the fall. I'm in a minority on that, but I can make an argument for it later. That all of these sorts of things we do in this realm remain good in their whatness. The fact that they exist is good. So, so, so these creational and cultural things are not corrupted ontologically. We don't have to separate from them. But they are bad directionally. And here's what I mean. Because sin is essentially a redirecting of the heart away from God, a misdirecting of the heart towards sin and idolatry, and because it is uh, religiously rooted and located in the heart, it radiates outward into everything we do. And so we continue to be cultural beings and social beings, but all of our social and cultural doings are in one way or another corrupted by our sin and idolatry. 
That's why when we look around us, we shouldn't be so surprised when we see it operative. And so because our society's ills are always and necessarily in some way or another religiously rooted, the antidote is also religious. So when I'm operating in the natural realm, in philosophy even, or biology, or psychology, in one way or another, in the big picture, at one time or another, in an appropriate manner, I've got to bring God's saving works and His saving word into the equation. It's something religious that twisted and distorted and misdirected the, uh, society and culture, and it is something religious, not something but someone, Christ Jesus Himself, who can redirect it back towards uh, God through Him. Grace and nature belong together. Let me quote Abraham Kuyper. For if grace exclusively concerned atonement for sin and salvation of souls, then one could view grace as something located and operating outside of nature. But if it is true that Christ our Savior has to do not only with our soul but also with our body, then of course everything is different. We see, we see immediately that grace is inseparably connected with nature and that grace and nature belong together. Think about it for just a moment. God's salvation does not operate and hover above nature in the natural realm or beside it. Romans chapter 8 tells us that his salvation liberates creation from its bondage, that somehow because of human sin, creation has been misdirected and twisted such that it is enslaved, and that Christ's salvation will redeem it, liberate it from its bondage. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest short passages on salvation in all of the Bible. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, or better, 13 through 23, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Christological passage in all of the Bible, makes clear that Christ Jesus is the Redeemer of all things. Not all people, but all things. Anything with the quality of thingness needs His salvation. All of these things in the natural realm. And His redeeming works and His redeeming word are relevant to everything in this, in this realm. This vision posits a distinctive way in which a Christian should live in the world. Christ Jesus' redemption should transform us in the entirety of our being. And as it redirects our heart from idols toward the one true and living God, it should then change the way we operate in culture, and specifically in higher education. His lordship is as wide as creation, and therefore it is as wide as our cultural lives, and therefore it is as wide as our educational lives. So our mission, therefore, the Christian mission, is as wide as the entirety of our social and cultural lives, involving both our words and our deeds and our teaching and learning. So here's what you want to do when you enter into a realm of study in higher education. If I were to distill it down at the risk of being simplistic, here it is. You want to do three things, and then I'm going to illustrate it with some contemporary goings-on. The first question you want to ask in any discipline, mathematics, theology, psychology, biology, literature, you name it. What is God's creational design for this sort of activity? Now, the Bible doesn't speak to this in a simplistic manner. And if you try to speak to it in a simplistic manner, you do more harm than good. So I'm not for a simplistic biblicism. The Bible is not a textbook for any of those disciplines. But the Bible frames, it provides the true story of the whole world which is a framework that helps us locate our particular discipline within a broader reality. And the Bible serves as a lens 
that brings into focus what sin distorts, helps us to see it clearly. And it functions as a witness that when we bring God's saving works and word into our teaching and learning, it helps us be a witness to his coming kingdom. We get to give people a picture of what it'll be like on that day when there is no more twisting and distorting and misdirecting. So what is God's creational design? What is his thesis for this sort of activity? Number two, how has this discipline been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry? And this is a very difficult question, just like the first one. It's not easy. It takes hard work, and it takes the work of numerous scholars and students working together, sometimes over decades and centuries, to be able to give uh, the answer that ought to be given in its fullness and power. But how, like at a deep level, has the evil one's antithesis, his antithesis, had its corrupting and misdirecting effect on that discipline? Number three, how can I enter into that discipline and seek to redirect it to its true end in Christ? How do you redirect it towards its true end in Christ? Protology and eschatology. Protology. You look at God's creational design. What did God intend for this sort of thing? Well, that it would glorify God, that it would serve the community and uh, cause people to flourish, that it would honor God. I mean, and there's much more. That's a whole lecture in and of itself. Eschatology. Now that Christ Jesus has brought us the salvation that he has brought and will give us a new heavens and earth, which is going to be complete with cultural institutions, art and architecture and song. How can I, in my discipline, teach in such a way that I am a preview of his coming kingdom? How can I give all glory and honor and power to the Lord Jesus Christ in my discipline? In order to do this, we must draw upon God's saving works and word. We must resist the antithesis tooth and nail, and not only from the pulpit, not only in our devotions, but from the lectern and from every station in life and from every path in life upon which our, our, our feet enter. Now, I want to pause and reflect on this in a contemporary manner. I've given you five historical views, and I've picked one. So I want to say right now that I think the fourth view, nature without grace, has gained a foothold in our country. I've been reading recently a sociologist named Philip Reef. I'm involved with the Paideia. I've been involved at the Paideia Center for Public Theology in Canada with uh, a group of my friends, and we've been reading Reef for a few years and Reef is a fascinating guy. In the 1970s, he was a rock star intellectual. He cut his teeth in Freudian studies, studied Freud, and, and he showed how, and he was the premier Freud scholar at the time, and he showed how, um, in Freud's view of neurosis, that neurosis arose largely because of man experiencing, Western man experiencing, the vanishing of authority. The belief in God was vanishing, evaporating, and it left him in a, a state that tended to create neurosis. But Freud didn't want to reinsert divine authority to get rid of neurosis. He wanted to recognize there's no need for God anyway, and so he employed psychotherapy to help remedy the neurosis. He dropped off the scene for 30 years for various reasons that we don't have time to go into today. And at the end of his life, he published a trilogy entitled The Sacred Order, Social Order Trilogy. The first book in this trilogy, entitled My Life Among the Death Works, I'm going to encapsulate it in about two minutes, I think describes the situation we're in in the United States. 
Then I'm going to describe what that situation looks like in our universities, and I'm going to try to give an illustration of what a Christian remedy might look like as an illustration of the view that I'm, I'm promoting here. So in his book, My Life Among the Death Works, here's what Reef argues in a nutshell, to be simple to the extreme. He says, he makes a historical argument, and he says that societies all throughout history have understood that sacred order underlies social order. In other words, there's a belief in God, a God or gods, and that that belief funds society. It shapes it. And it uses, and here's the trick, Sacred order uses culture to shape social order. It uses the products of culture to shape society in its own image. So whatever is believed about God or the gods affects the literature and the art and the philosophy and the science of a society, and it shapes that society. But what Philip Ar uh, uh, Reef argues is that we're in the middle of an unprecedented era in Western life, and in the United States in particular, where those with cultural power, many of those with cultural power, many of whom are located in our public universities, are attempting to rip sacred order out from underneath social order, leaving social order to float on its own. Now, I want to state for a moment this is disingenuous. Because they're not removing sacred order. Sacred order can't be removed. They're just replacing uh, God with false gods and God with idols, and often they are the idol of themselves. They're putting themselves in the place of God. But what Reef argues is that in this situation, the cultural products are death works often. Now, a death work, as he defines it, is, uh, I think I've got a quote here, is um, an all-out assault upon something vital to the established culture. It is a product of culture, a piece of art, a work of literature, a product of culture that serves as subversive agent that destroys that very culture. He gives a lot of examples. Freud, Picasso, Mapplethorpe, uh, James Joyce is a favorite, maybe his very favorite in my life among the death works. And when I say favorite, his favorite person to pick on. So Reef is against this uh, development. He's not for it. Um, I would mention for just a moment that I think the Supreme Court of the United States in the past few decades is the most important purveyor of cultural death works. That we're in a situation where the majority of our own Supreme Court has uh, entered into the creative class. And in some instances have, have left the legal sphere and become creatives. And they have fabricated rights. They've created them. They've used their imagination to create a right to abort a baby, for example. And that they are the, some of the main purveyors of death works. But I want to focus in just a moment on higher education, on highbrow professors who use their power at the lectern to try to rip sacred order out from underneath social order and leave it floating on its own. And on their pretension that they themselves are not religious, because they are. Rest assured, they are very religious even and especially Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and their little friends. The example I want to give is a discipline of moral philosophy. I'm, getting, I'm cheating. I'm going to give an easy example. More difficult examples could be given. Mathematics, sociology, psychology. I'm going to use moral philosophy. And I'm going to talk about Peter Singer for just a moment. 
So three decades ago or so, Princeton University looked around to see who they could find to teach their 20-year-olds the difference between right and wrong. They couldn't find anyone in the United States. They couldn't find anyone in the UK. They did find somebody in Australia, Peter Singer. They appointed him the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of, of Bioethics at Princeton University. He is, by most counts, the most influential and certainly the most infamous bioethicist in the world. Now, an ethicist, before he can tell you what's right and wrong, before he can tell you what you, you ought and ought not do, he has to tell you what you are as a person. And Singer argues that we have to rip sacred order out from underneath social order. He says we're in a new millennium and we have to define humanity. I quote, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. Christian sanctity of life language, he says, is, and I quote, religious mumbo-jumbo. In his 1975 text, Practical Ethics, he argues that species is irrelevant to moral status. Whether you're a human or an animal is irrelevant. An article in 2005 in Foreign Policy argued basically that only a mental midget could believe in sanctity of life for all humans. In a 1983 article in Pediatrics, he said, and I quote, if we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find the non-human to have superior capacities, both actual and potential, for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can be plausibly considered morally significant. So he was saying there is no such thing as the image and likeness of God. And there is no difference, morally significant difference, between an animal and a human. What counts is consciousness and functionality. The more conscious you are, the more functional you are, the more moral worth you have. And so if you are in the womb, or just out of the womb, you have less moral significance. That's why he's pro-abortion and pro-infanticide. You should have a few weeks to rethink it and take the baby back to the doctor and have it killed. That's why he is for euthanasia. Although he did not do that when his mother met the criteria that he outlined in his book. He didn't put her down. It is a case with mentally or physically challenged people that in some instances, for example, a spotted owl should be saved and a physically handicapped person should not if you had to choose. It was the case of Ashley, who was a severely disabled teenager. The doctors wanted to remove her reproductive organs and inject hormones into her to keep her from growing. And when the debate, as the debate raged as to whether or not this was okay, Peter Singer said it was perfectly okay because she didn't have human dignity. This is why he's okay with necrophilia. He teaches this at Princeton, a Christian-founded university. Then in its foundings, many of its founders held the view that I've promoted in this lecture. It's okay to have sex with dead people because they're not conscious and they're not functional. That's why he's okay with what he calls zoophilia, it's bestiality. He says, you know, it's not wrong to have sex with an animal unless it involves cruelty. Uh, it would be wrong, for example, to have sex with a small animal like a, 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 a gerbil or a chicken, he, he notes, but it would be okay to have sex with a larger animal like a donkey. Now, there's all, there, I mean, you can make non-Christian arguments against that. There's a number of them, self-referential absurdity. You could say you could take some other view that he holds and show how this view is inconsistent with that one. Like, well, you know, Dr. Singer, how is that not rape? I mean, what would consent look like on the part of a donkey? You know, hee-haw. Is that more of a yes or more of a no? 
you know, and, and so I think it's actually okay to make light of this a little bit. I mean, it, it is disgusting and it, it, it makes you angry, but it also reduces to a level of absurdity where you have to sometimes just sit back and laugh. How can you actually say this? Let us be clear. Singer's opposition to the image and likeness of God is not our religious. It's not atheistic. Just like Dawkins and Harris and, and these little guys. Their opposition is profoundly and pervasively religious. They have taken some aspect of the created order and elevated it to the position of God, whatever that is, and they trust and love and obey that instead of trusting, loving, and obeying the one true and living God. So you can keep God out of it, and sometimes it's necessary to. If you're a professor at a public university, you can't always bring your Christianity into the equation when you publish and when you speak, and that's fine. And there may be reasons not to bring your Christianity into a public argument sometimes, and that's fine. Maybe you want to make a natural law argument, and I'm really grateful for the grace above nature proponents and the uh, grace alongside of nature proponents who do a lot of natural law argumentation. People like Jay Budshevsky and uh, Robert George and so forth. Very grateful for the arguments they make, and they're good. But on the whole, we should also be able to bring God's saving works and word into it. The Bible it provides for us the true story of the whole world. It frames for us all of the particulars so that we don't have the particulars located wrongly or distorted. It serves as a lens that helps us to see clearly where sin would distort and obstruct our vision. The idols in front of our face are like trees, and we can't see beyond them until God's Word brings our, our vision into focus. And then finally, when we bring God's saving works and Word into the equation, we are allowed to witness to Christ in a way that we would not be able to otherwise. Now to conclude, Christian professors and students who want to operate in this manner, discerning the antithesis and going after it, and drawing upon God's saving works and words to do it, you will probably be pretty lonely. If you're in a public university, if you're in a private university, and even if you're in most Christian even universities and maybe even most evangelical Christian universities, they hold a different view of nature and grace. Alvin Plantinga writes, and I'm, 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 uh, he, he's a proponent of the same view, so I'm quoting this affirmatively. He says, a student who wants to think seriously about these topics is very much on her own. More than that, she is likely to be thought weird, peculiar, marginal, out of the mainstream. And that is because scholarship is an intensely social activity. We learn our craft from our elders and mentors but we can't learn how to do Christian scholarship from our mentors at these universities. And for this reason, we must build Christian universities and colleges, like the one housed at Southeastern Seminary, where we do education in its fullest capacity, and we bring protology and eschatology into it, and we draw upon God's saving works and His saving word so that we can be an encouragement to those professors and students who are in other types of universities and may rightly be there. I'm not arguing against having those types of universities. I'm actually for their existence. I think they should exist. But we can be an encouragement to them and we can further the field of knowledge. Alvin Plantinga and the Reformed epistemologists, I think, are a brilliant example of that. The creative and powerful work they've done in analytic philosophy has been noted worldwide, and they've done it not in spite of, but explicitly because of and in view of their Christian convictions. Let me quote the founders of Harvard College. 
If you're wondering if you can build an excellent college with the view that I've promoted here, let me let Harvard's founders speak on my behalf. In a pamphlet they published in 1643, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God in Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Like Harvard's founders, let us recognize Christ's majestic lordship, which is as wide as creation, because it's as wide as creation, it's as wide as culture. And because it's as wide as culture, it's as wide as the disciplines in higher ed. Let us say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in verse 130, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And let us realize that the illumining and enlightening function of Scripture is not limited to the private functions of our heart, but to, to the public domain of our world, including all of the disciplines of higher education. Let's pray together. Father, we approach you in the name of your Son and by the enabling power of your Spirit. We uh, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your creational word that ordered the world and made it the way it ought to be. We thank you that in spite of our sin and rebellion, that you have provided salvation for us through Christ Jesus and his shed blood on the cross and through his resurrection. And now as he has ascended and reigns right now on high over this world, this one world, this one kingdom, we pray that you give us the wisdom and the courage to know how to approach our disciplines and to bear witness to Christ within our disciplines in a way that makes the fullest use of your saving works and word. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.